Morning, Bill. Good morning, Mike. How you doing, bud? Yeah, we're hanging in there. How's uh, How's Matthew? Yeah, he's uh, slow but sure. Okay, I guess. Okay, I guess. Um, you seen Hard any progress? Uh, trying to get the volume right because my wife's still sleeping downstairs. Gotcha. Was everything like to you? Got a lot of books in those cases. Yeah, yeah. We just uh, finished. We have a total of fourteen bookcases. Wow. Uh, plus, I have a couple upstairs in the in my little library up on the main floor. But you don't give any away, huh? <laughs> uh, well, uh, half of them are are uh, Bible related, so those I don't give away, and the rest we just. I don't know. Over the years, we liked reading the same books in some cases over and over. So, yeah. uh, although I've really most of my most of my books now, I'm buying uh, digital copies. Did you have to move all those then when you moved, eh? I we moved them all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We I don't know if we'd have made it if it hadn't been for my uh, daughter and son-in-law. The two of them really helped us get these these uh, bookcases and books over here so that was that was a big <sighs> blessing for us at that time yeah morning there, gramps good morning well, there it is gramps yeah i like the shirt Yep, kids get keep getting them for me. Your your volume is really low. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. There he is. Looks like Alan's here, and he looks like I I saw your wife walk through the room there. That's she the just went right through. She's on her way to work. I, it's first time I have actually seen your uh, your your wife. So it's nice to know that you haven't been lying to us all this time. <laughs> that is true. I have it. Yeah. How's my volume now, Bill? You still seem a little far away, but you're not bad. Hmm. We just have to listen. I think I think your 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 speaker volume versus your your uh, mic is two different things. Hmm. So my guess is you just might have to enunciate. So anything anything new going on? For me, nothing. No. Are you recording or am I recording? I'm recording, I believe. Although we can okay. pause. I just saw the little recording at, at up, uh, up in the upper right-hand corner of my screen, and I thought, well, maybe did I hit something? <laughs> All right, and we're recording. So last week, uh, we we uh, I failed to record. I. I set up a whole bunch of Zoom meetings now, <coughs> and uh, I uh, the uh, there's an option to actually record. So uh, as soon as you start, as soon as I start, so uh, well, at least that way we'll get a get the recording going. So um, last week we talked about uh, the difference between knowledge and and wisdom. We talked about uh, that that knowledge without action is uh, not uh, what God's plan is. God's plan is for us to to add to our knowledge and as we add knowledge that we should uh, we should have activity uh, we talked about uh, 
the fact that God, that, that as we uh, become more knowledgeable about what God's provided for us, uh, we should become more thankful. Uh, we also talked about, uh, uh, we dealt with soteriology for a while, uh, which is the study of salvation. And, uh, and then we talked about the kind of the difference between uh, God who has um, uh, uh, redemption and uh, um, forgiveness of sin. And we talked about uh, uh, the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we talked about the fact that the kingdom of, of Christ or the kingdom of light uh, will eventually be turned into uh, and turned over to uh, God the Father and will be added to his overall kingdom. Uh, we talked about redemption. We, we talked about propitiation. Remember the difference? Propitiation is... Uh, the fact that God's justice demands satisfaction and, uh, and his holiness demands that there must be no sin in, in the camp. And so um, <clears throat> propitiation is the act of, 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 uh, of offering the blood on the, the mercy seat. Uh, when Christ did that, it was uh, the propitiation for our sins. We talked about redemption and we talked about redemption is uh, uh, defined as uh, the emancipation from slavery. Uh, there is a price that has to be paid, and uh, and uh, uh, God the Son pays that for us. And as we uh, uh, understand that God wants God the Father wants God in general wants to forgive us, but cannot forgive unless we accept uh, the redemption that Christ has offered us. We talked a little bit about the heresy in the second century in which uh, there was a two-step uh, process for salvation in which the first step was the remission of sins and, and then um, that was when you were baptized and then at a later date you received the redemption which was the, the perfect state. And while that's wrong because there's no two-step operation, there is a sense to which uh, salvation is an ongoing process. We talked about so the fact that uh, that uh, positionally we're saved, um, and then sanctification comes with the process of becoming saved, and glorification, the final act when we are fully saved and fully like Christ. Um, those are the, the the three things that that the three processes that we go through. One's an actual act. One's a process, the other will be a, a, an act at the very end of uh, time when, or when we are resurrected and or reunited with Christ. However that happens, uh, we will then uh, become like him and we will be fully and finally um, part, of the, uh, the part of God's family and fully and finally saved. So... There's a process by which I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will finally be fully saved at some point in the future. Now, as far as our standing before God, we're, all, we're saved from the moment we accept Christ. There is no change in that. But the process of, of uh, ourselves becoming like Christ is a process, and it will not happen, uh, it will not happen overnight. It will happen with time. And uh, so, all right, so that brings us up to date to uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Today, I want to take some time and um, 
deal with uh, this uh, ancient hymn uh, that we find here. If you remember, Danny actually wrote a song about this, and, and uh, it's available if you search for it. I can't remember the exact uh, location of it, but there is a place where you can get it on, on uh, the internet if you want to download it. But he also, we've sung it at the church a number of times. Um, and it is almost uh, word for word uh, pulling right out of uh, a portion of this, uh, this hymn. So starting in verse uh, 15 and going through verse 20, uh, we have what is considered the hymn uh, of uh, the ancient, one of the hymns of the ancient church recorded for us in scripture where it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or dominions, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through, the blood, through his blood and shed on the cross. All right, so this is, a, again, this is an early hymn. There are, um, the hymn is complete in itself, although it's kind of interesting. Uh, we're not sure if Paul actually wrote this or if he dropped it in. It was a hymn that was there that, he, that was being sung, and he added it to the, his work. We don't know for sure. Uh, there are scholars on both sides of the question, and I don't know that anyone will ever be able to fully know for certain until we get to heaven. Uh, and then we'll get to heaven. I'm not sure we'll really care. Um, but it is, a, it is a hymn that reflects the worship in the early church. And it's an amazing uh, hymn in the depth of, of knowledge that it has, uh, uh, theological uh, information. In fact, one of the things that has always been a, a concern about uh, new um, songs that we sing in in churches is often uh when we go to a praise and worship format uh we lose some of the theology that some of the ancient and some of the older songs teach us especially the the great hymns of the faith now there are some that are writing current songs that have great theological doctrine but a lot of times uh the praise and worship songs we have today deal with our emotions and our and our feelings about who God is and what Christ did for me versus talking about who God is and about the theology of who God is and about the theology of salvation and the kingdom and all those things wrapped together so as you uh, as you sing in your churches um just pay attention uh as to what you know what you're learning um Martin Luther was accused of, of uh, teaching his church by songs. There's, in fact, his, uh, his uh, enemies used to say that he was singing his people into, doc into his heretical doctrine uh, because he taught, he, he used songs that were, uh, he wrote songs and then he used songs that were, uh, that had popular tunes at the time. Remember back in the early times, prior to the printing press, and then even uh, on even I, somewhere in my bookshelves back here, I have a, a small 
uh, hymnal that was uh, uh, used during uh, the Civil War. In it, it has the words, uh, in a part of the book, it has the words, and in a part of the book, it says the names of the various songs, the tunes, that you can sing those words too. So it would not be unusual for song leaders back in the day to announce, we're singing such and such a song, and such and such a tune. And, uh, and occasionally uh, in some of the churches that still use hymnals, in fact, when I was, when I was leading worship years ago, we, and, and I was in a church that had hymnals, I would occasionally look for alternative tunes uh, to put to the words so that it would give a fresh uh, understanding to the, the song sometimes. Just putting in a new tune uh, made it fresh. So, all right. So our, our goal is to, to look at today at this, uh, at this hymn. Uh, there are those that say that it is uh, two verses. Some say uh, two verses with a, a bridge in between. Some say it's uh, it's got three verses. I, I don't know. It's hard. It all depends on how you want to slice it and and dice it as to how you get it. But we do know that um, that the hymn is uh, is important because Paul included it in the in his writings. And we know that it talks about two things. The first portion of this song uh, deals with Jesus and creation. The second portion of the song deals with redemption. So uh, if you'll notice, it says, uh, you know, he is the image of God, uh, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And for by him, uh, for by him, all things were created in things in heaven and earth, invisible and invisible thrones or powers, uh, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. That's the creation part. And, and then it goes on to talk about he is the head of the body. Uh, he is the beginning of the first, uh, and the firstborn from among the dead, and also in everything that he might have preeminence. Because For God was, was pleased to have in, in him to have all fullness to all. So we talk about redemption and the rest of the, the passage, the last couple of verses. So uh, what I think you'll find here is, is, as we look at this, is that every aspect of life is touched by sin and every aspect of life that was touched by sin must also now be touched by God's grace to bring everything back to the way it was supposed to be. So let's start, let's start digging into this. It says in verse 15, it says, he was the image of the invisible God and he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, um, the word image comes from a Greek word that has a couple of nuances. The, the first one, uh, it emphasizes that, um, that Jesus is the, the symbol of deity and uh, that, that Jesus is the symbolizes God. The problem with that is that if all he does is symbolize God, he's not the same as God. So the second portion of, of this word image uh, talks of, it has the, the concept of the manifestation of God, uh, the exact representation of God. Um, uh, and the point is that Christ um, is uh, uh, that in Christ, the invisible God becomes visible. He shares the same substance as God and, and made Christ and God made God's character known in this earthly sphere of, of existence. 
think about this. This was one of the big struggles for the early church. Is God the Son of the same essence as God the Father? If he isn't, then he's not fully God. But if he is, he is fully God. And so what you have here as this plays out in this passage is you have uh, the Jewish concept of, of uh, monotheism being transformed into a Christological monotheism in which Christ is the representation fully. Uh, he he <coughs> exists so that we can see and know who God is. Because remember, he is the exact representation of God. He is God's uh, God just here on earth as in flesh. Now, this is kind of interesting because uh, think about this from a Jewish perspective. In the, the, uh, in the law, in Exodus chapter 20, we are told that you shouldn't make any uh, images of God the Father. And yet we have here Christ uh, becoming uh, for us um, the image of God. And, uh, and then we are told that, that man was made in the image of God. Same word. Um, it's interesting that First uh, Corinthians... Uh, eleven seven, and again, this is one of those tough things that that depends on the church you're at and your position on your theology. In uh, it would appear that uh, that that uh, uh, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. That's the verse. You can argue with it. You can figure out if it if it, it only applies to their aspect in time. Uh, but that's what it says in 1 Corinthians eleven seven. It says also that uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, that uh, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So we have here, uh, Jesus uh, is in this first one, is the, is the, uh, the exact image of God, and as such, it expresses his his relationship uh, with all creation. So let's take a look at what does it mean to be firstborn. Uh, there are different ways of de de defining this concept of firstborn. Um, in the Greek, it literally means to bring forth or or beget uh, and first. Now. Uh, it occurs uh, in, in the uh, Septuagint, which again was the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It occurs uh, 130 times. And it, uh, it is, uh, develops into meaning a special relationship uh, with God the Father and one of privilege. Uh, Psalm um, as an example, uh, David uses this uh, in the Psalms to describe his relationship with Solomon and also uh, in a, a messianic uh, a prophecy uh, 
God, Christ's relationship with all of uh, all of the kings of the earth. In Psalm 89, verse 27, it says, I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of earth. If it's referring to Solomon, if you know the history of, of, uh, of Solomon and David, you'll know that Solomon was not his firstborn as far as by order of birth order. In fact, he isn't even the firstborn of, of Bathsheba. He's the second. So the term firstborn has more to do with a position than it does with um, than it does with birth order, and and as such, uh, it uh, uh, the the concept of birthright uh, is interesting because in the birthright, the first son had a special place in the family. But you'll remember that even in in Jacob and Esau, uh, Jacob through a, a, a bit of a trick, but God's plan was worked out in a way that I'm not sure how it would have happened without the trick, but the plan was for Jacob to be the chosen one, not Esau. And as such, he was considered the, he would be considered the firstborn because he's the one that got the blessing and got the firstborn inheritance, um, which is always, again, in, in Jewish perspective, always got a double portion of, or at least, twice as much as everyone else that got. So in, in, when he says he is the firstborn over all creation, it distances Jesus from creation uh, rather than uh, putting him uh, under creation. And this is one of the problems we run into in other heretical per perspectives when we say, well, Christ, you know, Christ was born, no. It's, a, it's not about being born. It's about, about your, pers your position. I'll give you an example here as we get into this just a little more. Notice that uh, in, um, in verse 18, which we're not there yet, but I just to point this out to you, uh, it says that he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Did, was Jesus the first one to ever be raised from the dead? No, no, no. So either Paul got his information wrong or it doesn't mean uh, a birth order, you know, as to who's first. It, it has to do with, with uh, authority and, uh, and position that is granted to someone. And so, uh, and as such, Christ is the firstborn of creation. And as a result, of, he's also the firstborn of the dead. The Father, um, now, when it talks about here, let's look at this. Um, for by him all things were created. Um, look at it this way from this perspective. The Father has a significant portion of creation. He is, the, he is if you will, the architect uh, of, of the creation. <clears throat> he determines uh, to bring creation into existence. The Son... Uh, actually brought the plans into existence. So he could be considered, if you want to carry out the concept of architect and carry it forward, you could say he's the foreman of the construction. And then the Holy Spirit is actually the one that does the hands-on work of, of creation. So uh, if you go back to the very beginning of creation, you remember uh, 
uh, God said he speaks and remember what is that the spoken word and the living word is Christ so we have God the Father God the Son and because he spoke it into existence and it says the Holy Spirit was hovering, <coughs> up, hovering like a dove above the, the, the waters and above the earth uh, so all three involved in creation notice it says that um, um, there are three phrases here in 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 first in uh, in sixteen, uh, and you'll notice that uh, the first one is uh, in verse sixteen. It says, "For by him," uh, in the original language, it really kind of in in it more it would say in him, uh, as as though in his mind or in his sphere of influence and responsibility. Uh, all things were created. Uh, it means that that uh, while it was God the Father who was the architect, it was God the Son who put it all together in his mind and created this concept of what we can have today. Secondly, we have also that by him in verse uh, 16, part B, uh, it literally could be translated uh, uh, that through him, Notice at the end of the verse, uh, all things were created by him and all things were created by him and for him. So this idea of uh, by him on the second portion uh, could be translated uh, through him. The NIV uses the term by him. He is the agent of creation, if you will. And then finally, it says for him. And, and that literally means unto him. It means that Jesus is the goal of all creation. Everything exists in creation to display Christ's glory. And ultimately, he will be glorified in all creation, whether we like it or not. One day, every knee will bow, either by choice or by force. So, uh, in the same way that, that Jesus is also a central point of all creation, he also rules over it all. Now, I want to talk just a little bit about this because every once in a while we run into something that's kind of unique. And uh, today we have that possibility. So hang on, I've got to share the screen. This takes me a bit to do. And if you want to see the, this in large size, you'll have to uh, uh, change the way you view and go to the speaker view so you can see a larger version of this. But here is uh, share. And we're going to talk chiasms. Chiasms are important. And there's a chiasm here in verse 16. Uh, one of the, someone defined chiasms as introverted parallelism. And I say, what in the world is that, right? Well, okay, let me see if I can show you. So here's what the definition of a chiasm is. A chiasm refers to a sequence of elements of a sentence, a verse, a paragraph, a chapter, or even a book, which are then repeated and developed, but in reverse order. And it's sometimes called an introverted parallelism. Let me demonstrate this this way. So you have a concept, in, and we call it, we'll call it A. Then there's a second concept, the B. And often there's a, the B is repeated. Now, it might be the exact word. It might be a different word, but it has the same concept within that idea. 
the third, the, the last is the A being repeated again. Now, uh, also you have other options, and these are just three, there's all kinds you could add to this. I also show an ABC where C is the central figure. There are also options where there, there are two Cs, uh, and, and then there are others that come even more than that. But this is the concept. Now I wanna show you from a, a couple of places, places in scripture, and then I'll show you where it is here in, in, in Colossians uh, 1.16, and then I'll apply why it's important. So uh, let's look at John chapter four, uh, verses 23 and 24, and let me just quickly turn there so I can read it. Well, you can see it right here, as a fact. But the hour is comes, this is in the, in the King James, the hour cometh, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him, God is a spirit, and they that <coughs> worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Notice how this flows from an A, that worship, uh, worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, in, in spirit and in truth. And then notice part B, uh, they, that they worship him. Notice C, God is a spirit. Notice we go back to B and we have worship him in B, and then in A, we have worship him in spirit and in truth. So we have an encapsulation and always within a chiasm, uh, it's, by the way, chiasms are not unique to, to the Bible. Chiasms happen in all sorts of writings. It's a, very, it's a very specialized thing that happens, and when it does, it's very unique. And in the Bible, when it happens, the, the stuff in the middle, the Bs or the Cs or the Ds, whatever the middle portion is, becomes the most important part of the, of the, of the chiasm. So in this particular passage in John 4, the important part is that God is a spirit. Now, Jesus goes on to say that he's also God, the, the Son, but in here he's talking about God as a spirit. And, and so it's all wrapped up, if you will, in, and you go from the shell to the white to the yolk, you know, of, of the egg, if you will, to God as a spirit. Now, how does that apply in, uh, in uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16? All right, let's see if we can show you here. So in Colossians 1.16, it says, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. All right, so the chiasm is the heaven, earth, visible and invisible. Look at it this way. Heaven, spiritual dimension. Earth, physical dimension. Visible, physical dimension. Invisible, spiritual dimension. So the important part is B, the physical. Why is that important in, in Colossians? You're demonstrating the sun. Right? Yeah, but what was the what was one of the things that Paul is is attempting to correct as a problem that they have in Colossians with their theology? Someone's come in and taught them something. Part of uh, Gnosticism, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the issue revolves around the fact that the physical in Gnosticism, and, and even in this precursor of Gnosticism, this is, Gnosticism isn't full-blown until the second century, but there is, there's a, uh, a whiff of it here. There's a, the beginning, the seeds, if you will, of, of uh, Gnostic Christian uh, concepts here. And in which the physical is bad, 
remember, <clears throat> the spiritual good, physical bad, there's a dualism that's going on here in this teaching. And so Paul is attempting in every way possible, he, he's saying Christ is over everything. And oh, by the way, he also created not just the spiritual, but the physical. The stuff that your other teachers, your false teachers are telling you is wrong is not. It means you're allowed to tap your toe or toes if you're a Baptist. That's how we sing, right? <laughs> All right. Yeah, you know, there used to be a guy who used to say that, that if you're a, a Baptist, you can tap one toe, but don't ever tap two. Because if you do, you're dancing. <laughs> I don't know. Just kind of weird how that works out. So it's important, I think, you saw that. I, I hope that, that it gives you a sense. Now, by the way, it takes a while to find chiasms. It's, you and I are not trained in general to, to look for them. When, they, when I find them, I feel like I found an Easter egg. You know, because it's it's pretty rare that I find it. But scholars have done. In fact, there is a one. I was reading a scholar uh, as I was preparing for this, and 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 he blew the chiasm. He got the chiasm right. He said, "Yeah, there's a chiasm." His idea was that the outer portion was the most important, the spiritual. And I'm going, dude, do you not know why this book was written? This book was written to to counteract the concept that the flesh is bad. The physical aspect of this earth is bad. And, and, and by saying that Christ is involved in the creation of the physical as well as the spiritual, he's saying it's important. Oh, well, sometimes I, I'm, I'm amazed. That, that, and by the way, as I said, when we get to heaven, we're gonna find out we got this little much right and this much wrong. And that's one of those times I believe this guy's gonna find out when he gets to heaven, he got that this one wrong big time um, because again chiasms always the center is the most important much like uh, um, oh man my mind just went blank um, yeah uh, inclusios inclusio is another term you can look up and inclusio is a is where a, a verse, a, a phrase is repeated at the beginning of a portion, a passage, and at the end of a passage, it kind of bookends the passages. It tells you that everything that's in the middle is important. So it's like, uh, you know, um, uh, a candy bar where you got the, you know, the, or an Oreo where the, the stuffing is the important part of the, of the, uh, of the, of the uh, inclusio. All right. Well, so. isn't, uh, isn't verse 16 an inclusio? I mean, the first phrase for through him, God created everything. And the last phrase, everything was created through him and for him. Yeah, it is a, it is a good way of looking at an inclusio. That's good, Gary. You caught something I, I'm not sure I, I paid attention to. That's a good example of how an inclusio, which means that everything that's inside there is important. And oh, by the way, in case you didn't get it, let me throw a chiasm in there as well, just to, just to point out how important it really is. That's good. That's a good catch. My question would would the early readers of this have been understood that yeah they, they were much more inc inclined to see this than than uh than we are today because we're not just taught that you know it was mm -hmm. it took a while in my uh my education till i ever got around to understanding about chiasms or even inclusio mm -hmm. it wasn't until i was in in seminary uh i'd gone through a uh christian training from the time i was in junior high high school i mean i studied bible doctrines in high school 
and we missed there was just so much that we missed and so but i think the early church was a lot more involved because remember inclusios uh, and chiasms for that matter uh, you didn't have all the great things you had on a keyboard today where you could put, you know, bold and, and you could put uh, uh, italics and you could underline. Well, you guys, you could have underlined it. In, but all those things were not common. They didn't have parentheses. They didn't have uh, ellipsis. They didn't have brackets. So if you wanted to give some kind of information, it was you had to figure out a way of doing it that made sense for the average reader. Remember also... <laughs> Most of these readers, mo most of the, most of the time, uh, this was read aloud, and so you would kind of sense the rhythm, and it would, it would, it was a little easier in some of the original in the original languages to catch some of this because it was a rhythm that that would develop. Also, um, you had the advantage of hearing it, and sometimes when you hear something, you catch things more than you do when you read it. It has again to do with how we, we process things, I think. I can remember being in, uh, in my car listening to, um, I think I was listening to one of the, uh, I was listening to one of the gospels, I forget which one now. And I, it suddenly dawned on me, I caught something that I had read probably a hundred times or more in my lifetime and never noticed the concept that was there that I, when I heard it read. And I think that that's important that every once in a while we, you're right. But I think, Mike, that it's a good question. And I think the answer is that I think they were probably a little more in, in, inclined, especially if you were at all been trained at all. Um, remember, in, in, in not necessarily in, in rabbinical school, but in, in the synagogue schools, you learned the, the, uh, the Torah. And some of those were found in the Torah. Um, you especially found them also in the Psalms. And remember when we studied, um, remember we studied Hosea, we found chiasms all over the place in Hosea, especially in the second half of during all the prophetic portion of, of Hosea. First part was the story of Gomer. The rest of it was kind of, there was a, a, a large prophetic section. And it was during that section we found chiasm after chiasm after chiasm. Um, and we were trying to pick it apart and some of you got real tired of it very quickly. I don't know why you got tired of chiasms. I get tired of them too after a while. It's like, well, it never ends. But apparently we need to be repeated. This stuff needs to be repeated because you and I have a tendency to forget. Well, the thing is that uh, at that time, they relied on testimony from Paul, from people that witness uh, Christ, mm -hmm. how you can conceive is the image of the invisible when I haven't seen it, yep. how I cannot comprehend it. So Paul being a witness, because he met Jesus, he can um, put both things together. You know, how this God that's invisible, I can realize in my life when I haven't seen it, haven't touched him. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's why he says, we have seen it. To you, it's invisible. To us, was invisible, became visible, and now it's still invisible. You wouldn't know. that also be an easy way to remember what you're, because most people wouldn't be able to read. So you'd hear that, and maybe it would be a memory. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it probably was a memory, uh, something mm -hmm. to help you. Sure. 
Right, because the the manuscripts were uh, uh, passed along by voice rather than by books like we have today. Yep, as we, I, I, I was uh, I was talking with a, a group on uh, about Acts, and we were dealing with the subject of um, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch who's reading scripture. He's reading from Isaiah, and uh, you know the the question that comes to mind was, well, why? You know why did was was um, Philip able to address a question uh, when when the, the the Ethiopian eunuch said, "Well, who was the writer talking about?" Well, the reason that Philip was able to understand it was, again, it wasn't until later in uh, in centuries later that we actually started to read silent. In the early days, you read aloud, so. The Ethiopian eunuch is sitting there reading out of Isaiah, the scroll out of Isaiah, and he's reading aloud, and Philip is right there standing beside the chariot, and he goes, who's this guy talking about? Which, to me, begs, there's a whole lot of questions that's got to be going through his mind. Why did the Ethiopian eunuch ask Philip a question? How did he know that Philip would know the answer? It wasn't like he was wearing a badge or something and said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a deacon in the church, you know? Uh, it, it wasn't like he had his ordination papers strung around his head or something. I mean, how did he know that this guy, so I, it's just, a, it's a fascinating, but the issue is that, yeah, oral tradition is very important in early days. And uh, if you have a chance to listen to scripture, uh, you might be interested in, in how it kind of flows together and you pick up different nuances that you might not have picked up in just reading it. All right. You know, I think I, Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I, I think I've mentioned before, uh, there's been times when I've gone through and, and reading the scripture, uh, I'll put on my, uh, my Bible app and have, have it, uh, 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 you know, have the guy speak it and I'll read along with it. And yeah. it, it makes a big difference reading. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, doing it's that. tremendous. And read it. You know, it slows you down, and then you just you're listening to it and and reading it. You know, at the same time, and it makes a big difference. You know, when when we were meeting uh, physically together uh, on Tuesdays, every time I would go into uh, church on Tuesday morning, uh, I would listen to the passage I was going to be dealing with. I would listen to it in the car. Uh, just to kind of refresh me and, and to pick me up and to and to go, oh, there's a nuance there I hadn't thought of or, or phrase it just kind of popped out. Uh, but I would listen to it in the car. I'd put it on my phone app and you know and go from there. Uh, U uh, U version Y O U version is is great for that. It's got lots of audio uh, translations that you can listen to as well as read. All right, uh, let's look at verse 17. We're, we're making progress. We're, eh, well, who knows? We'll see how far we get. So it, it, it says here that first it says he is before all things. Uh, this is um, uh, definitely a time orientation. You, you know, he, Jesus exists, existed pre-birth, pre-incarnation. He exists outside of time. He is before all things, and so uh, he it teaches that Jesus was in existence prior to if prior to the creation of the world. Uh, 
Um, and since the ancients uh, priority in time often meant priority of persons, this is an argument that also stressed uh, Jesus' role in creating and gave him a prominent position in respect to creation. So he is before all things. And then notice in the second phrase there, in him all things hold together. Uh, he, a way of thinking of this is that by him, um, all, he is the glue that holds everything together. Uh, I, I'm going to go into an area that I, I don't know a lot about, and so I'm sure that when I, what I'm going to say is probably wrong, but I think it makes sense. I think it's right. In talking about the atom, mm -hmm. have you ever noticed that atoms hold together, but there's a lot of space between all the stuff, the, the, uh, the electrons and uh, spin around, but they they stay they stay there. They don't, you know, the protons and neutrons stay stuck together in the center of the core, and the electrons are spin. Why don't they just spin apart? Attraction. Hmm? They are controlled. They're controlled. I think it's because Christ is holding a, a, the the creation together. Exactly. Now that's my philosophical, theological perspective. If I was a scientist, I'm sure I would have a much better answer that at least that they would think was better. But I think I'd like to believe that, that, that Paul is true here and, and the scripture is true. And it says that in him, in Christ, all things hold together. He is the, not only created it, but he sustains it. Well, so there is, an, there is an answer even for the scientist. You see, the scientist, they can observe like we can observe. In order to make a collide, they have to force something. Yeah, they shoot uh, other. That, that's why. Otherwise, there's no way that it can happen. Just because it's just a, my imagination that says, "Oh well, they got together and they decided to boom collide, and all of a sudden we have whatever we have." Mm -hmm. It's an impossibility. Without the intervention of something outside of it, there is no action. There's an interesting thing here in, in this whole concept of creation and being held together. Um, a lot of the ancients believed that their gods held it together and various aspects of various gods did. Um, the Greek believed that Zeus uh, was uh, held together. Some of them believed that it was Logos, which is interesting because what does John and even Paul eventually do is they, they use the concept of Logos and they Word. apply it to Christ. Right. So literally Logos is holding it together. Well, the, you know, the ancient, um, uh, scholars, the ancient, uh, uh, philosophers weren't wrong. <laughs> They just didn't identify who Logos was or what Logos was. So um, uh, Logos uh, holds it together. Uh, and then in verse 18, it goes on to say that uh, he is the head of the body, the church. Notice the church and the body are, are together. This is a metaphor for the body, which is uh, really uh, is played out in a lot of verses. First Corinthians uh, 12 is probably the, one of the main parts of it. There are other passages that talk about that Christ is the, the head of the church uh, in, in Ephesians. 
it's a metaphor for the body. And one of the things that, that recently made me think about this is, um, you know, when a part of the body hurts, the head acknowledges that it hurts. You ever notice that? You ever notice you can't divorce the head, the thoughts that are in your head from the rest of your body. If the rest of your body is in pain, your head acknowledges it. I think God, the, the son, acknowledges when, when his, his body's in pain, when the, our, our physical representation of, of, of Christ's body is, we are his representation here on earth. Um, and so I think, it, I don't know, just, it was, a, it was a thought that dawned on me and I go, eh, I never quite thought of it like that, but yeah, that's true. You know, when I hit my thumb, my head acknowledges that my thumb got hit. Well, it's the same thing. I don't decide to breed. Whatever's inside decide to breed. I don't decide, oh, I'm going to take another breath. You know. There is an involuntary uh, action you're saying there. Although there are times when I come out of the water, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I decide I, I, I physically make a decision that I'm right. going to breathe. But, right. Yeah. So there's this aspect that the body is, this body, he plays out in a couple of thoughts. The body must strive for maturity. It's important that the body matures. It's important that the body exercises. And we can take this metaphor and go, Ephesians 4, uh, 15 and 16 says, instead of speaking, instead speak the truth in love that, that we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So when one part of us doesn't do our work, the body suffers. There's also a, a redemptive part uh, that the, the head of the body plays. Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. There's also um, a hierarchy, if you will, of body parts. Um, what I, you know, there's one thing that, that I don't ever want to know. I don't ever want to know what my body part is in the body of Christ. <laughs> I, I'm, I'd be afraid of what it might be. But there is a sense to which in, in Colossians 1.18, it talks about the fact that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead and everything he might have supremacy. So there's a hierarchy to the body parts. Um, now, when we talk about the difference between a body and the church, you can talk about it from a couple of different perspectives, and both of these are right. There is an organic perspective of the church, like the body. The body is organic, and as such, Everything kind of meshes and mashes together and works in a way that, that's organic. But there's another aspect to the church, and that's the organizational part the, the, uh, of the model. And the church, sometimes the church is, uh, is organizational. Sometimes it's organic. And I think that it depends on where it's at. There are times when you have to treat the church kind of like a business, but you can never forget that it's also organic and that when one part of the body hurts, all of the body hurts. And I think sometimes churches get confused about that. It's really tough uh, hiring and especially 
firing staff because why the body hurts when you let go and, and, and it's one thing to make a decision for what's a good i a good reason for uh organizational but you also have to look at it from the organic perspective and sometimes churches fail in one aspect and and or the other i i remember i was in one church when i was real young and if anything it was an organic church it was not an organizational church the pastor was a mess when it came to organization but boy it was really organic you know and there was a sense of 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 unity in in the body it was very unique but boy when it came to organization he was a disaster um i would not have um i was glad i was i, I wasn't involved i was real young at the time and i wasn't involved in church other than just attending so anyhow all right so uh okay we talked about he's the beginning and i think that that means temporal primer primacy um there is an aspect to which we talk about here uh thrones powers rulers and authorities all things were created for him and by him i think that in this particular instance these are are not physical but perhaps spiritual uh realm as well uh, much like uh, Ephesians says that we don't, uh, our fight is not against the flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and et cetera, et cetera. So this is a, an extension of that, that uh, Paul is bringing out. And, um, and let's see, let's get over to, yeah, man, running out of time. All right, uh, let's look at verse 19. Uh, it says here that for God was pleased to have in him, uh, to have all of his fullness dwell in him. What I love is that Paul uses the, some of the, 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 the terms that the Gnostics use, but he applies it totally differently when he's talking about Christ. Fullness is this idea of the totality of the emanations from God. Um, emanations or aeons uh, were spiritual and separate from the, the, the physical, physical world in Gnostic theology. And these emanations came from God, but they were not considered a part of God. But here, Paul flips it on its, on its head and says, no, 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 he is the fullness. He's not just a little bit, not just a few. All of it is, is in him. He's again talking about he is the full uh, measure of deity. Um, he, he has that Jesus is completely God. Not just a portion, but fully God, as well as being fully man. It says, again, in for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, not just a portion, not just an aeon, but all of it, all of God was in him. So uh, in the Old Testament, this term, this fullness, uh, was pleased, that God was pleased, this idea of pleasure uh, showed God's pleasure with right actions and displeasure with evil. In the New Testament, the term expresses God's pleasure with his son at his baptism. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. I love. Yeah, whom I love, yeah. Uh, it's also used in the transfiguration. God says that he is pleased by his son. 
Uh, and although these uh, uh, are not necessarily what this text is referring to, I think that the concept is there, that uh, the fullness dwells. It's a present tense in, in the Greek, stressing an ongoing reality. It isn't like, well, he, like God came upon him and then left him at a later date. No, no, no. He is fully God. He was fully God. He is fully God. And he will always be fully God. That's what the, the Greek is, is saying there. So, all right, um, getting, I have, I have 20 more pages of information. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, we're going to, uh, I, I'm going to come back next week and we will do the, keep doing this. What's that? Keep doing it. <laughs> oh, okay. We will, we will do the application next week as part of this, but I, I want to get on to this idea of um, God's delight in, in, uh, in Jesus' central role of redemption. Um, and we're going to talk about how he, he reconciles, uh, and, and we're going to look at, at three things next week. We'll look at the scope of reconciliation, the goal of reconciliation, and the means of reconciliation, and, and how that plays out in scripture and then we'll do the application because i see that we're just about out of time there's no way i'm going to get through this verse 20 in uh, the two minutes or so that i have left so um i want to tell you again i want to thank you for that <laughs> for for bearing with me especially when i started talking about chiasms i can imagine since i couldn't see the screen i imagine some of you were kind of there was this this veil that kind of i'm sure went over some of your eyes but it really is important that we understand uh scripture and again scripture is easy enough to understand that a child can understand it but think about how we got to dig today in the 21st century we have to dig for chiasms they're not really evident to us and yet they're really important they point things out to us as as we dig deeper again in this in the in, when this was written it probably wasn't something that people had to dig deep for because it was part of what they were they were used to. Um, things have changed over the years, you know. And uh, today we would we would have uh, put it in a different color when we printed it out on our laser printer, or we'd have we'd have made it bold, or we'd have put it in brackets, or we'd have changed the font, or or the or the type uh, size. We'd have done something to in, indicate those things. So. Um, it is an amazing, it, to, to write a chiasm is pretty amazing, especially if you do it well. Um, if you ever, ever tried it, it's, it's seems like it's easy, but when I come up with them, it's like, yeah, that's pretty stupid. Um, I apparently don't have the gift of chiasms, you know. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll, uh, we'll close here. We'll uh, come back to this next week. And... Um, We'll uh, have a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son, for his being the firstborn of being the preeminent one, the one who created and the one who sustains us. We thank you that he is the head of the church and, and the head of our body. And we thank you, Father, that he is um, concerned about every aspect of our, what we go through. Uh, so we pray that you would help us to stay focused on you and on him. Help us to live a life that brings honor and glory to you, to realize that not only are you interested in the spiritual well-being, but also in our physical well-being in all that we do. 
We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to pause.